This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. That has provided a level of clarity and transparency that's been welcome to our, especially our learners in trusting the system um, and to the faculty to understand, because, you know, they have concerns about due process, of course, and fairness. And so we've been able to share data at that level. And I think that's helped uh, to build trust amongst the system across our community. I think you're exactly right. It starts with just transparency. Faculty want to know what's happening and in and unless you have an open channel communication, it's it's a lot open to a lot of rumor and people don't know and suspicion. So I think I love that you have this report. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Mary Dankoski from Indiana University School of Medicine. Hi, Mary. Hi, Kim. Why don't you tell everybody what your title is there at the School of Medicine in Indiana? Sure. So my title is Executive Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs, Professional Development, and Diversity. Uh, It's a pretty long mouthful. Um, And I'm also the Lester D. Bibbler Professor of Family Medicine. And how long have you been there in Indiana? Well, I've been here at IU School of Medicine since about 1999, actually, so um, going on 20 years, which is pretty amazing how fast time flies. 20 years there. So how did you find yourself in faculty affairs? Well, um, it's it's not an area that I had ever intended to um, work in, actually, so uh, back in 1999, I was a graduate student, a PhD student um, in the marriage and family therapy program at Purdue University, um, where I was also working on a graduate minor in women's studies and um, was uh, pregnant with my first baby. Um, and I needed a clinical internship and I was moving here to Indianapolis. So I had a colleague who was a faculty member in the family medicine department um, who I contacted, and um, she invited me to apply for a clinical internship at the Family Medicine Residency Program. And um, given my circumstances, that I had a baby on the way and um, needed to find an internship and try to keep moving through my degree program because that baby got me real motivated, um, I went ahead and um, applied. And I hadn't at that time even ever really thought about working within academic medicine. So um, uh, long story short, but I started working in our family medicine program, um, which family medicine residency programs often have family therapists um, as part of their faculty to, to teach um, a behavioral medicine curriculum. Uh, there's a, a quite a bit of common philosophical roots between family medicine and family therapy, so it's not all that uncommon. Um, and so I started there uh, to do a clinical internship primarily while I was also working on my dissertation. And before the end of that year was up, I was offered a full-time faculty position. So um, I thought, well, this could be fun, um, an interesting uh, turn in my career. I had enjoyed my internship, so I agreed to stay on as faculty and um, really had not even thought about faculty development at the time. But uh, uh, my my colleague, Steve Bodwick, who many people know in GFA, he's oh, yeah. one of our longtime GFA members and a Phronesis Award winner, um, Steve Bodwick was the vice chair uh, in the Department of Family Medicine at the time and became a mentor of mine. Uh, he also has a background in family therapy, so we had some common um, uh, specialty or disciplinary roots, and he became a terrific mentor. 
And a couple of years later, he had been tapped by our then dean, Craig Brader, to build a school-wide faculty development unit. And um, I had started uh, talking about um, the quality of our teaching and our family medicine program, ways that we might, um, you know, teach differently, kind of enhance our collaborative teaching. So I had started doing some uh, what I would call teaching development without even really labeling it that way, um, just because of a, of an interest and some observations that I had made. And so um, Steve invited me to think more about making faculty development part of my um, career. And uh, later on, when he was asked to build a school-wide um, dean's office that focused on faculty development, he asked if I would join his team. Um, I had been leading some faculty development initiatives in our Department of Family Medicine by that time. And um, with my background in women's studies, uh, diversity affairs was also part of um, Steve's portfolio in this new school-wide uh, faculty development unit. So he thought I had a, a good background to help him uh, build this office and get it off the ground. So I had the good fortune of being part of our office from the beginning. Um, and... Over the years, it just became uh, my real passion, and I grew in that direction, and I now have the privilege to lead the office that Steve started uh, years ago back in 2005. So what does that office look like? Can you describe for us how many people, in, in broad strokes, who does what and how um, the percent effort of people in your office? Uh, sure, sure. So we have I have three broad areas that are part of the uh, scope of responsibilities. I mean, they're just clearly listed in the title of the office. So, of course, it's faculty affairs, professional development, and diversity affairs. And um, across our our whole team, across all three of those functional areas, I have a number of um, faculty members, our leadership team, assistant and associate deans, who have part-time appointments in our office. Um, so they are faculty members who are um, who have their regular departmental uh, work, but then also work part time for us. Right. So if I add up all of that FTE across the three units, um, the faculty leadership FTE is about gosh four point three five. That includes um, a one point FTE uh, research and data analyst who works exclusively for our team. So. Um, the others, though, who are partial appointments are about 3.3 FTE, and that does not include me. Um, and then we have a, a wonderful staff team that supports our work. Um, so if I add our director-level staff and our uh, professional and administrative staff, that gets up to about 17 FTE. And then, of course, we have some part-time hourly and graduate student support. So um, we're a fairly large office. Uh, but again, we're the largest medical school in the country, so it takes a pretty big um, group of individuals to to really uh, carry forward the work of our team. Yeah. How many um, faculty do you have in the School of Medicine? Um, well, let's see. So our full-time faculty um, here in at IU are over over 2,000, about 2,200, but we have a very large contingent of volunteer faculty members across the state. Um, nearly 4,000, actually, uh, volunteers across the state that we have some responsibility for, making sure that they're prepared to teach and um, are engaged with with the school. Uh, and so some of that is our, our history here of being the only allopathic medical school in the entire state of Indiana. So we have nine campuses across the state. Um, 
the main campus is here in Indianapolis, but we have eight regional campuses. And those eight campuses have a very large contingent of volunteer faculty members who um, take medical students on clerkships and electives. And some of those regional campuses also have um, nearby residency programs that are affiliated with us as well. So it's it's our student population that um, that really sets us aside as the largest medical school. So our um, student body every year, our first year class of medical students entering IU School of Medicine numbers about 364. Um, and that is across all of our nine campuses. And so if you multiply that times four, um, plus we have... Uh, 10 PhD programs and multiple uh, master's level health professions programs. Um, and then, of course, we have a very, very large number of uh, residents and fellows as well. So when you add all of that together, we end up being the largest medical school in the country. Oh, my goodness. That, that's overwhelming to me. <laughs> do those volunteer faculty, well, I guess they call them faculty, do they, they obviously have faculty appointments, and so you're, de- you're delivering faculty development services and offerings and doing the whole annual review and all those processes with your volunteer folks as well? Well, um, yes, to some extent. So uh, we do a lot of outreach. Um, We have a lot of, um, you know, electronic resources, of course. We have online modules, newsletters, um, various sorts of things that are pushed out to our volunteer faculty members, plus Um, local ways that we engage them working closely with our regional campuses. Um, We don't do annual reviews of volunteer faculty. We review their their teaching, um, their reappointment, which is every three years. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for that setup. I think, though, you know, the point of these podcasts is to try to not only start conversations with our friends around the country, but to maybe help folks who are new into the faculty development or faculty affairs, academic affairs, try to understand um, how each of us delivers our, you know, our product and how we work with our faculty. So I think it's helpful just to get a different sense of how we all work. So I was just kind of curious and like to um, inform us about what's unique or different or something you're excited about lately that you might want to talk about and uh, put that out there uh, to our community. Uh, sure. So uh, we have a lot of things that I could talk about um, because our team, I will say, one of the things that I, that I love about our team is that they're incredibly innovative and constantly um, experimenting with new program offerings, new ways to assess what we're doing, um, various ways to increase the engagement, vitality, and diversity of our faculty. So we have a lot going on um, across all of our three areas. So I, you know, I can just maybe pick a highlight um, of each of the areas to describe. Um, So one of the things that we've been working on within sort of our faculty affairs unit um, for a number of years is our um, approach to faculty recruitment, our executive and faculty recruitment. We've presented on this uh, a couple of times at the GFA annual meeting, but one of the things that we've done over the last couple of years is is essentially built what is the uh, equivalent of an internal search firm. So we have a, a fairly large team of individuals who... Um, really staff our executive and faculty recruiting functions, and that allows us to um, do some very creative and proactive sourcing uh, that's really um, expanded the diversity of our applicant pool significantly for all of our executive searches and um, our faculty searches as well. We've developed a number of tools and resources, um, an online sort of course site that has a number of Resources that our fac- that our excuse me our department chairs can use for their local faculty recruiting. 
for the executive searches that our team directly supports, we've adopted a standardized approach to how we, um, uh, like I said, source candidates, but also using uh, behavior-based interview questions, uh, working to minimize the impact of unconscious bias, um, and having a co-chair model where each of our executive search committees is co-chaired by a member of our uh, dean's office leadership team, our faculty affairs, professional development, and diversity team, which really helps us um, attend to the process. And um, we've built it all around a set of leadership competencies. So we evaluate all of our executive uh, candidates according to leadership competencies that we then also use in our leader 360 evaluation. Mm -hmm. uh, so every couple of years we do a 360 evaluation of all of our leaders and we use those same competencies um, that we use when we recruit leaders. And then we also use those competencies to drive our leadership development programs. So we have sort of this robust approach, I think it's robust, um, in how we recruit leaders, um, assess and provide feedback to leaders, and then structure professional development opportunities. So that's been a very exciting development for our faculty affairs team um, over the last several years. And, and I would say the other um, significant project within faculty affairs that is, you know, really important work, although it's not the um, sexiest of work, if I can use that term, um, is to really think about the ways that we um, review, triage, respond to allegations of lapses in professionalism, whether that's learner mistreatment or disruptive behavior. We've been doing some work with our um, health system partners, the med staff office, and our uh, faculty practice plan, Indiana University Health Physicians, or IUHP for short, where we are working to align our policies around coding, uh, codes of conduct policies, the way we respond uh, to these sorts of complaints. Um, because what we found is that depending on where a complaint was first lodged, we had very different or disconnected approaches to managing those complaints but they might be the very same uh, individual. So if the complaint was lodged under our learner mistreatment reporting system, it might have been handled one way versus if that same case or same complaint had gone to our med staff professional standards uh, committee. And because of our governance structure, we're, you know, we don't fully own, for example, our hospital system. We have joint governance. Uh, we have separate policies and procedures. So sort of behind the scenes, we're working uh, with all of the important stakeholders, including our legal counsel, to see if we can bring greater alignment um, in our policies and protocols for managing these sorts of things. So it's, you know, it's again, it's not the most exciting um, of, of work, but I find it to be incredibly important to how we serve our community. Taking a one step back on your faculty affairs with this re recruiting process you set in place, how do your sure. candidates find this process? I mean, I'm just, um, I'm wondering if someone's applying for your a position, and then they come into this um, process with, where you have these competencies. Do you, do you, for instance, share the competencies matrix if it is like something with the candidate, and then the candidate has an awareness of what these competencies are, or is this you are are looking for certain competencies um, from your end? You know, one way causal versus saying this is part of a, this is a job description, and here, by the way, are the um, competencies that we hold true to ourselves and then building a discussion or interview process around that shared matrix or are you, 
you know, again, one-sided trying to kind of find if that person has capacity or where they are on, on those competencies? Yeah, that's a great question, Kim. Thanks. Um, we, when we uh, invite potential applicants to apply for our position, um, we do ask, of course, for a cover letter that uh, describes not just their academic accomplishments, but also also their accomplishments as a as a leader. What have been their leadership um, uh, outcomes? And um, so we do a little bit of queuing up. I think that we're looking specifically for a description of leadership in some of our written materials. But when candidates come to visit, and our search committees use this uh, structured interview that has questions mapped to our competencies, we don't necessarily say out loud what those competencies are to the candidate. Um, but our committee knows uh, what those competencies are, and each person on the committee has a question to ask that would get at one of those competencies. And we also send a list of sample interview questions out to everyone who would be meeting with the candidate because our um, our uh, evaluation is built around the competencies. So we ask everyone who interviews candidates to evaluate candidates according to those competencies, but we don't necessarily tell those candidates um, up front because we, we also would like to see how they are sort of authentically in that experience as well. Um, and so we ask for a lot of examples. We use behavior-based um, questions to really try to get at uh, what some of those um, competencies really are. Fascinating. And then you mentioned the 360 evaluation that you build on those competencies. And so I imagine that you've got a system where somebody were to have a file folder, if you will, you'd have a sense of where they were on those competencies. And then this a 360 is perhaps is done shortly after a person gets there. And then you revisit that 360 to try to um, strengthen some of those um, weaknesses. Uh, how does that um, process work? Sure. So we have uh, several different assessment or surveys that we conduct out of our team, and we have them on sort of a rolling basis. So our 360 is one of those major uh, survey activities, and we do that every three years now. Um, so it may not be immediately after a chair, or for example, a new chair or a new executive uh, joins our school that we would do that 360. It might be um, in the, you know, within their first three years that we would be doing that at some point. But our chairs who have been here for a number of years, um, you know, can look back uh, longitudinally at um, how their uh, leadership is being perceived by um, the people they serve um, over time, and uh, certainly uh, those are used in conversations um, with those individuals about their own their own strengths and areas for professional development and growth um, as leaders as well. You you also talked about uh, with professionalism now the the code of conduct. How have your faculty members broadly experience this process. So I'm just curious if there is um, transparency around um, any interventions, if you will. So like at Hopkins, if we have somebody who who was looking for someone to you know, talk about a situation and then we carry it up through the channels, sometimes, as we all know, it's not necessarily obvious what has happened to the with the investigation of the incident or the what happens to the alleged perpetrator. It's not very clear. Like whatever happened with that, did you brush it under the carpet? And so it's not always evident to the faculty members. And then sometimes, you know, they think that leadership is turning a blind eye or deaf ear to something. And so we try to tell our faculty members that. Um, you're not always privy to what's happening uh, behind the scenes. It may appear on the surface that nothing is happening, but 
believe me, there are things back in the kitchen that are happening. So I'm I'm curious if you've um, in Indiana have figured out a way to obviously you've got a good system, but how do the faculty experience or uh, what is their level of awareness of your interventions or your process around the codes of conduct? Sure, that's a, another great question. So uh, we're at the very tip of the iceberg in our work to align our uh, professionalism policies and uh, procedures with the practice plan and the med staff office. So that is, that's work that's just at the beginning and our faculty, I don't think, yet are aware that we're doing that because we're doing a lot of the behind the scenes work um, currently. But I can speak to how we share uh, data as it pertains to our learner mistreatment system. So a couple of years ago, as we were preparing for our LCME reaccreditation site visit, we realized that we needed to um, put some additional infrastructure behind our our methods for um, both reporting and responding to allegations of learner mistreatment. And because you know, unfortunately, most of the alleged sources of mistreatment are faculty, especially in the clinical years. Um, I became far more involved in that process than I had been previously, and we now have a infrastructure for that that includes an online incident report form that has some automatic alerts that come to me and other um, key educational leaders like our Associate Dean for Student Affairs, um, our DIO and Graduate Medical Education Dean, our University Council and others, and we have sort of a rapid triage and response approach to that. And as part of that process, we clarified our policy and procedure around how we respond to learner mistreatment, and we built off the Vanderbilt model, that cup of coffee model that many of us are familiar with, that have um, sort of those levels of intervention where that, that lowest level is, of course, that cup of coffee informal conversation, and then it escalates from there where there's a level two of a more structured conversation with usually someone like a department chair, for example. Level three would be where the dean's office gets more directly involved. Level four is where um, you would take a more um, sort of definite approach on either teaching privileges or perhaps even a, a faculty appointment if it you know, we're a faculty member that we were talking about. So we have a pretty clear sense of a level of intervention um, uh, that we that we use. And so what we've done over the last couple of years since we've had this system is where we, while we can't report out on individual cases, because you're right, those are confidential, um, you know, uh, personnel matters at that point, we have been reporting out on the number of those levels of intervention. So we actually just finished our 2018 annual report and so, for example, we can say to the community how many uh, allegations, how many cases came in through the system in 2018, the types of complaints that they were, because we use the GQ mistreatment categories. Um, were they against uh, clinical faculty, basic science faculty, nurses, administrators, residents, other students? Uh, were they were patients the source of mistreatment? Because we're beginning to hear more complaints that patients are. Um, treating some of our learners poorly, and then how we responded to that. So we can say, you know, of, of the 39 cases we had in 2018, you know, 22 were level one interventions, sort of informal cup of coffee, first time non-egregious, um, two were level four, et cetera. So that has provided a level of clarity and transparency that's been welcome to our, especially our learners in trusting the system um, and to the faculty to understand, because, you know, they have concerns about due process, of course, 
and fairness. And so we've been able to share data at that level. And I think that's helped uh, to build trust amongst the system across our community. We, you know, we, we have challenges in Baltimore with safety and neighborhood safety, and we have a, a really uh, a hot potato in, in our capital now trying to get our own armed security police force. And there's a lot of debate around that, but I think you're exactly right. It starts with just transparency. Faculty want to know what's happening. And, and unless you have an open channel communication, it's, it's a lot open to a lot of rumor and, and people don't know and suspicion. So I think I love that you have this report that just simply puts it out there. And especially then the, the follow-up, what was, what was the, you know, the re, the resulting, you know, response to that. So I think that's so important, just to, at least initially awareness, documenting it, logging it, and then being able to follow that over time is wonderful. Mm-hmm. So you Thank you. It's been, yeah, that's a lot of work. Sorry, it's been a good development. Yeah. Yeah. So you were also going to tell us maybe some innovative or cool things going on with your other two facets of professional development and diversity affairs. What's, yes, what do you want to yes. share? Happy to do that. So um, within professional development, of course, we have a host of different programs and offerings, and some of them go back several years. We have some signature programs. Our our leadership program for junior faculty, for example, is in its 14th year with our largest cohort ever. Um, but our newer uh, uh, areas of expansion have to do with collaborations with our Kelly School of Business. That's part of Indiana University. So we've developed both a way to sponsor faculty members to complete a full physician MBA program. That's two years and 52 credit hours where we pay the full tuition. Um, Short of that, we have a program that we've uh, worked with the Kelly Business School faculty to develop that is the equivalent of two graduate level courses within the MBA program that is kind of a a sampler platter, if you will, on uh, business concepts, financial acumen, strategy, and that's been uh, a popular new development that we've had. Um, Separately from that, we've had some new um, efforts to support associate-ranked faculty, as our data have shown that, um, like elsewhere, our mid-career faculty uh, have less satisfaction, and so we have a member of our team who's really focused on that. His name is Matt Allen, and he developed a, uh, a budget and a proposal to give um, small sort of travel grants to associate faculty members um, to take uh, what is sort of a mini sabbatical, if you will, to go somewhere and learn a new technique or a new skill. Um, and we just issued our first award. It's, our, it's called our Skill Enhancement Award, and we just uh, issued the very first one. So that was very exciting. I think it's really going to be a, a boon to that faculty member who's going to be able to go um, and spend three weeks with a colleague at the University of Colorado and learn a whole new technique to bring back to her laboratory. So we're very excited about that as a new uh, development as well. Oh, my gosh. That is fantastic. How did you come up with, or how did, did Matt come up with this, or was this a result of a faculty satisfaction survey, or uh, I'm just bowled over by this. This is a piece of well, travel that, and who's funding that? Yeah. That is amazing. Sure. Well, um, it was informed by our faculty uh, survey, and um, but Matt had the idea to, to try to put some legs behind this, and um, the, the budget is a share between our office, our dean's office, with some funding by the department. So we require a 25% match um, or contribution by the department so that there's some co-investment. And so 
uh, co-sort of commitment by that uh, department chair as well. Um, and they're not huge awards. I, I think the maximum amount is like $8,000 or something like that. So um, it is, uh, uh, but to that individual faculty member, I think it feels like a, a big um, boost in some ways um, that we really hope is going to help uh, really build this this um, professional development for this particular person. Yeah. So how, I'm just, uh, this is maybe a nuts, too much of a nuts and bolts question, but how does the award Winnie, this, this first skill enhancement award, how does she or he then cover clinic or service time or are they, are they not a clinician? I'm, I, I'm, I'm envisioning um, people being, yay, this is wonderful, but oh, boo, now how do I cover clinic time? Because you probably share the same thing that many of us do. We have these leadership development programs even sometimes getting out of a half day of clinic, you know, we have to make sure that they're scheduled three, six months in advance to be able to get that um, reprieve. So is that fa how is that factored into the award and the mini sabbatical, this release time from other obligations? That's a, that's a great question. And yes, we have that dilemma. Um, it is always a challenge. It's, it's always a challenge for our clinical um, faculty to manage those uh, expectations around work RVUs and clinical productivity. Um, this particular award, this first person um, is a, a PhD, a basic scientist. So that was not uh, necessarily an issue for, um, for her. Uh, the, the, the program is available to clinicians and basic scientists alike, um, and I think that's somewhat where the departmental commitment comes in um, to to try to help um, protect this person's time uh, as well. So we don't we we really try to work with the individual faculty member and the chair on how they would manage those expectations. Um, but they have to write a proposal and have a budget and have a project that um, that we think is worth. Um, sort of committing these kinds of institutional resources uh, toward. So there's a, a structure to the program that um, allows for some departmental flexibility in how they would manage those obligations that the individual may have. And I love that sampler platter concept um, <laughs> with the Kelly School of Business. We, we have a Kerry School of Business, and of course, folks can also get a, an MBA there, and, and they've been pretty creative with structuring that, but we, we don't, we in the School of Medicine certainly don't pay for that tuition and it's, it's pricey. So kudos to you for figuring that out as well. Oh, thank you. Yes. And I, I should say our faculty members get a tuition uh, discount um, when they enroll in that course. So it is a formal credit bearing course. They have to enroll as a non-degree seeking student and then they use their tuition discount to pay for that course. Um, so it is a collaboration with the Kelly School on the curriculum side, um, but the faculty members do bear some of that cost themselves because they enroll as students. But most of our programs are fully funded by us in the dean's office. This one just, um, it's, it's partially the way that the Kelly School of Business also um, operates, so it meets their goals as well um, and provides for the faculty member um, to, to use their tuition discount as well. So I will say, you know, there's other efforts underway, certainly within professional development. We're experimenting with um, learning communities. Uh, to stimulate some educational scholarship. We have a terrific program on communicating science that's led by my colleague Krista Hoffman-Longton. Um, and then the other uh, new development is we're very soon to launch an internal recruitment for a chief wellness officer who will also work um, as part of 
um, our team, but also co-funded by our faculty practice plan. Um, and so we've not recruited that individual yet, but we are very, very soon to do so. So like many other places across the country, we are very worried about burnout and how that's impacting, you know, faculty vitality and satisfaction. So we're uh, working very closely with our practice plan to uh, to appoint someone who would have some dedicated time to really work on those issues as well. So what's going on in your diversity space? Absolutely. Happy to talk about our diversity uh, work. So we are, of course, it's a really busy team. Uh, this, this is a unit that is not just responsible for faculty diversity, but also for all of our learner diversity uh, as well. And when we talk about diversity here at IU, we have sort of three pillars of diversity that we organize our efforts around. Um, and those pillars are representational diversity. So, of course, that's um, our goal to increase the diversity of our physician and scientist workforce to better serve um, our state population and to improve health outcomes. Our second pillar is to create an inclusive climate. And that's, of course, trying to create an, a climate or an environment where all members of our community feel valued and respected. And our third pillar is cultural competence. So we certainly have a strong emphasis on um, promoting cultural competence for everyone um, as a cornerstone of the highest quality education and patient care. So we organize all of our work around those three pillars. And, of course, we have a lot going on. I mentioned some of our faculty recruitment approaches that's under our representational diversity um, efforts as well. But we have a number of pipeline programs ranging from how we um, work with pre-medical school students to how we um, are working to encourage our medical students to go into our residency programs here and then as a pipeline to the faculty as well. Um, we're uh, later this month going to host uh, the Building the Next Generation of Academic Physicians. That's BINGAP is how it's also commonly known. That's been hosted at several other medical schools as a way to encourage uh, students and residents of color to consider academic careers. So that's coming up at the end of this month. We're very excited about that. Um, and we also just launched this past year uh, the first cohort-based faculty development program for faculty of color. So um, it's our acronym for that is PLUS. <laughs> it's our program to launch underrepresented minority success uh, or URM success. So that's a terrific program that was just got off the ground this year by my colleague, Dr. Bronson Tucker Edmonds. Um, and so that's a faculty development program that really sort of builds on many of our other programs, but is specific to a cohort of um, underrepresented faculty to try to build a greater sense of community and a sense of belonging amongst those individuals as well. Um, but we also have really worked very hard over the last um, couple of years to have every department and regional campus have a, a um, individualized diversity plan that maps to those three pillars that I spoke about. And so we also have um, worked very closely with our department chairs and our regional campus deans to align their efforts on diversity according to those uh, pillars and to have uh, a greater integration of diversity-related efforts at the department level as well as at the school level. So that's been a huge lift. Um, and we're doing a lot of work, of course, to create an inclusive climate, um, and it has to do with uh, workshops on unconscious bias and um, having welcoming events for faculty and students of color, um, some policy development around how uh, discriminatory comments made by patients or mistreatment by patients, how that is handled within our healthcare facilities. Um, and then we've done a lot of work on um, trying to elevate the level of 
information and knowledge around LGBTQ healthcare. So we have an annual conference um, on that topic um, that has grown uh, significantly in attendance over the last two years. And we have a new track in our Family Medicine Residency Program, our LGBTQ healthcare track. Um, and that was informed quite, uh, quite a bit by our, our team and our subcommittee on LGBTQ healthcare issues. So um, we've done a lot of different things across those three pillars uh, that we're very excited about. What, what do you mean by the LGBTQ track? Yeah, so our Family Medicine Residency Program has an established track as a curricular area of emphasis now focused on LGBTQ healthcare issues. Um, and so some of the clinical rotations are designed to um, uh, treat patients of that population from a primary care perspective. Um, and uh, there's some additional uh, content and curriculum that's been developed specific to caring for that population. Wow. That's, that is... That's such important work, and I'm I'm ov always overwhelmed when I talk to folks who spend a lot of time thinking about medical school curriculum and training opportunities because there's just so much out there that, you know, almost you can imagine the finger waggling, say, well, do you teach your medical students about abundant data and mm -hmm. resilience, and is there a track on empathy and... Um, leadership competence and so you you start thinking about medical school curriculum and you think oh my gosh there's so much to be to be uh, taken in anyway and then we 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 are aware of all these critical things for building careers after medical school that we think oh sure students you know we really need to teach them how to get to big data and precision medicine and diversity and resilience and it's it's overwhelming to me, and I'm just always in awe of people who put curricula together, and then for the learners who look at this and think, oh my gosh, there's just so much out there, so much more than the past, you know, couple decades or back in the day when when I was coming through, you know, graduate school. Yeah, I, I think that there's no shortage of priorities, and uh, there's so many different ways that our our teams, teams like ours, uh, can um, influence curriculum, can influence culture um, by the ways that we partner. So, you know, clearly uh, this this example, this track within our family medicine residency program was um, a tremendous partnership with the family medicine department and that program director with um, a specific faculty leader in the department. And then the lead from our team um, is Dr. Alvaro Torrey, who's really worked um, with our LGBTQ subcommittee of our diversity council at the school level to sort of uh, put this structure together and inform that. So it's a, you know, it's sort of a dean's office and departmental and program partnership, um, which I think is a terrific way to move things like diversity goals forward, um, because you really can't do all of that work just centrally from the dean's office. You have to have, I think, ownership at the department and program level if we're really going to move the needle on diversity, which is one of the reasons why we were really excited to have um, department-specific diversity plans for the first time ever. Because um, it creates a, a broader ownership of diversity that we're all responsible for it. Um, and it takes everyone working kind of in concert with these shared goals um, to really get there. So, um, you know, our team provides support, leadership, some resources um, to help those departmental initiatives move forward. But it really is a, it's a partnership model, which is very exciting. That is wonderful.
And now, I, of course, I can't help but be curious about the feedback loop with anything we do and anything we put money and resources and time and effort behind. What at the end of the period, you know, do you demonstrate or report out to your leadership body in terms of, all right, this is how many people we impacted. This is the initial, intermediate, long-term outcomes. These are the, you know, the indicators we use to measure those outcomes. And so I'm, I'm sure you've thought all that through, but that is, again, another, such a, a, a big lift when you think of designing the programs, implementing them, and then measuring them and reporting on their, you know, the outcomes and then the investment, the return on that investment, and especially trying to make the case that we won't necessarily see immediate impact three months after, you know, this, this skill enhancement award, awardee comes back, you can't see something necessarily the next minute or with your new track, but it, it sometimes takes a while to, to, to grow that um, outcome and to, to see the fruit from that labor. How, how have you thought about, or how do you, how do you kind of close a loop on that reporting out and evaluating the efforts there? So that is a terrific question, too. And, you know, it's something that I think all of us who do this kind of work are challenged by is what are the data that we should be tracking? How do we know if all of our programs are effective? How do we show that return on investment? And our team has spent actually a great deal of time uh, talking about and thinking about uh, the evidence base for what we do. And it's it's really fundamental to how we uh, approach our work. And, you know, this is really credit to Steve Bodgewick, who started our office, because he was very, very focused on this from the beginning, which was, you know, he, he's fond of saying uh, from the quality and safety literature, you know, the phrase that says, do you want to believe you're doing good or do you want to know you're doing good? Mm-hmm. Um, and so from the very beginning of our office, we have worked to build in robust assessment methods um, into the work that we do. So one of the ways that we approach that on our team is that we think about the domains of our work. Um, So, for example, uh, leadership development would be one domain. Teaching development would be another domain. Um, Increasing, you know, the climate um, for inclusion would be another domain that's sort of our diversity-related work. And so we have those sorts of domains for our professional development programs, for example. And we have worked to try to categorize our programs under these core domains and then to have an assessment cycle where we are um, looking closely at those domains on a regular basis. And um, built into that assessment cycle are some of our major surveys as well that I mentioned, like our 360. We have our faculty vitality survey that has uh, questions about um, the environment, for example, and how satisfied faculty are, but also the environment for um, uh, whether they feel included, do they have a sense of belonging, um, their level of burnout, those sorts of things that can map to some of our other areas. Um, And so we really uh, look at um, the indicators of our success of our programs by those domains. So our program evaluation um, that we use for each of our individual programs um, have questions that are mapped to those various domains. Uh, So we track those over time in addition to looking at other indicators like our um, repeat customers and, and those sorts of things. So there's a number of ways that we look at this. Return on investment, I think, is a little harder to get at, but we also have been um, thinking about some of those more institutional indicators, like um, things like uh, promotion rates, retention rates, uh, years in rank, um, 
and uh, you know even some of indicators around uh, publications and grant funding. So, for example, faculty members who come to our um, events that are around uh, writing grant proposals or writing for publication. We've done some follow-up surveys to ask them about their um, writing productivity and their success rates, and so we can sort of um, correlate that with their attendance, of course, at those events. So uh, really trying to be as robust as we can with our program evaluation strategies is a, is a high priority for us. That's so impressive. I assume that's the major effort there is conducted by your 100% effort research and data analyst. And and if so, um, how how have you built your database? Or very, again, briefly, I don't need all the details here, but I assume then to be able to do this, you have to have a pretty uh, robust database or way to capture the data, pull the data, code it, analyze it. And I'm assuming that you have an analyst, that's that person's job is actually herding all these data? Yeah, so we're, we're, we're very fortunate to have a very talented um, research analyst on our team. Her name is Amy Rivera. She has a PhD in higher education um, and has managed very large um, faculty and student-related data sets at her previous um, position before she uh, joined our team. And she works really closely with uh, Dr. Megan Palmer, who many people in the GFA community know. Um, and Megan really is um, oversees our professional development functions primarily. So she's our associate dean with responsibility for, for our faculty development. She works really closely on all of our research and evaluation efforts. And Amy's very talented. And um, we do have a, a I think, pretty robust data set that maps all of these um, evaluations and participation uh, patterns uh, to some of these outcomes. Wow. That, that is so important. I think so, at least we do at Hopkins, we struggle with capturing all the data systematically. And we've, um, we're shockingly to me, I've been at Hopkins six years, we're still struggling with capturing all the data from entry through, you know, I guess leaving the, the institution. So we have, various databases and spreadsheets and file folders and attendance sheets and program evaluation sessions. And we're still kind of trying to get all those data in one spot and um, trying to figure out how best to do that. So that's that's been a problem of, we've had for a while. So I'm really impressed that you've got that system in place. And you sounds like you're um, kind of the model there. Maybe we can talk with um, Megan sometime in a future podcast to learn more about that. Oh, I think that would be great. Um, I think Megan would be a great choice for a podcast. She's very creative in this aspect and um, has really helped us elevate our our evaluation systems, she and Amy both together. That's wonderful. All right. Anything else you'd like to share with us, Dr. Dankowski? Um, not necessarily. I think I think those are some of the highlights. I mean, I could go on for a long time <laughs> to talk about all the different aspects of our work. Um, because there's a tremendous amount that's happening, and um, there's so many members of our team. Uh, I've mentioned many of them by name, but I haven't had the opportunity to mention all of them, but they're all terrific and creative and wonderful, and so I hate the idea that I may have left someone out. It's not at all intentional. It's just sort of where the conversation took us, um, but we have, a, we have a terrific, terrific IU team here. And you're clearly doing a lot of a really um, innovative and creative work, and, I, and I'm sure you've inspired and, and captured a lot of people's um, attention to go take a look at your site, 
have another conversation with you, follow up with you and your fellow IU folks at the next PDC in, in Chicago in July. So I really uh, thank you for sharing this information with us and look forward to another conversation in the future. Everybody, we want to thank Dr. Mary Dankoski, and that wraps up another session of the Faculty Factory. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.